We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separate, sport coats, and dress pants from Collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. The Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Gator Nation, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Alan Williams, right here next to James DiVirgilio. The Gators coming off a wild and wet homecoming win. We've got a great show for you guys. We've got Brandon Seiler, Gator legend, coming up. We're going to answer your questions on our mailbag. But first, James, a lot of points on the scoreboard. Was that a little bit of a deceiving win for the Gators? Very deceiving win for the Gators. I think we scored 19 offensive points. We had six points going into the under three-ish minute mark in the first half. Had a bunch of yards, but not a lot of offensive points. Didn't really score a bunch of offensive points in the second half, and we scored points on two drives where Luke Del Rio threw the ball right to the Missouri safeties, and they did not wind up picking it off. So some smoke and mirrors with regards to the production on the scoreboard numbers-wise. A lot of yards in the game, though. So a, a weird game with regards to the stats. And this is one of those cases where the, the stats can lie to you a little bit if you just looked at them. It's a little confusing. If you watch the game, it's probably a little bit more of what the truth really was. Yeah, if you just were checking in on your ESPN app and saw, hey, 40-14, to 14, Gators win, had 500 yards of offense, they just rolled them up. Now, that's technically true. I don't think Missouri was ever really in this game after, you know, the Tabor pick six. But, yeah, you know, I, I felt alternately really frustrated by the offense and kind of like, I guess intrigued by what the potential is so 500 yards of offense is nothing to sneeze at we've only done that a couple times in the last decade it feels like uh but yeah when you're watching it just felt like it was a lot of fits and starts no momentum no rhythm to what they're doing a lot of busted plays i think most gator fans left that game feeling a little frustrated by the overall performance side of 
despite a big win. There was no really other way to feel. It, the, the day of the drizzling rain and sort of dismal crowd atmosphere kind of matched the play on the field, unfortunately. And, and we continue to play what's a really soft schedule. So the 65th hardest schedule in the country right now, Missouri was a defense, as we said last week, that had given up over 500 yards on basically three separate occasions. This was no different this time. So still frustrating. A lot of things that were really frustrating that we're going to get into in a little bit. We're going to forensically diagnose what we think went wrong and what we think went right. There were plenty of good things that happened in this game, but it's important to take a look at what exactly was happening. There was a lot of groaning in Gator Nation, if I had a pulse on it after this game. I, I got a lot of messages and a lot of unhappy people out there wondering, is the Jim McElwain experiment going the way we wanted? And I think it's too soon to definitively answer that, but I think we're going to explore some of the things that maybe is causing the underlying frustration uh, that fans have, that I certainly have on certain points as we've been running it throughout the year, and then decide whether or not that's a short-term problem or if that's something that's here to stay. Yeah, it's kind of weird. On a day when the Gators take control of the SEC East, Tennessee loses to Bama, big win on homecoming. A lot of disappointment out there. I think a lot of people jumping off the bandwagon. It's a weird time for that for me. Uh, I feel like I'm a little more hopeful, or maybe just want to see a little bit more. We're coming into the meat of our schedule, and still a lot of questions, can we do it? Let me ask you about our quarterback, Luke Del Rio. Do you feel like his knee injury affected the way he played in this game? When you when we watched the game on film, it was clear that that he was not finishing really any of his throws. He wasn't. That's his. That's his front leg. So it's his left knee. It's his anchor leg. You're going to push off that, turn off that, twist off that. They got a lot of pressure on us. So a lot of the throws he had to make, there was a lineman coming directly at him, and I'm sure that affected him as well. But it was definitely clear that he was not using that left knee as a drive leg. That is your drive leg, and if you want to go outside in your backyard right now and try to throw without pushing through your planting leg, if you're a righty, that's your left leg, a lefty, it's your right leg, good luck getting any sort of velocity. And he's starting a major college football game at home not being able to plant. And so you saw a lot of the velocity down further than what you would even expect from Luke Del Rio, and he wasn't throwing on platform. His footwork in the pocket was not good. Uh, He did consistently seem to make the right reads most of the time, several occasions where he did not either. But I think the knee affected him in a nutshell. He didn't look the same as he had in the other games with his movement in the pocket and his ability to plant and step and throw. It's hard to see on first glance, but yeah, he said when we looked at it, especially when there's a guy at his knees or diving at him, or even just a couple times where he felt like there was going to be a little bit of phantom pressure, he wasn't stepping in through. And and that's where you need I – mean, he doesn't have a lot of velocity. Anyway, he doesn't have a big arm. He needs to drive through the ball. So I'm hopeful as that – you know, kind of heals. He gets more confidence. That's going to clean it up. Also, wet ball for him. I don't think that helps him at all. He's not the biggest guy. I doubt he has like huge hands to be able to like grip that ball in any kind of condition. So a lot of factors working against him. And a reminder with him, this is only like what his fourth game that he's playing. Still very new. Still very raw in his overall development. Um, so maybe a, a few. I don't know, excuses is not the right word, but maybe a couple asterisks next to his play. Yeah, cause cause for concern s- still. I'm still concerned. He's, there's still throws he can't make. We haven't seen him make them yet. He does have good excuses in this game. We definitely know he's not a good wet ball thrower. 
We saw that against the first game of the season against UMass. We saw the same thing here today. Rarely is the ball spiraling at any given point in time. And if you're wondering why that is, the more wrist flick or the more wrist drive you have as a thrower, the better you can spin the ball. With a guy like Del Rio, he's mainly a shoulder thrower, an arm thrower. And uh, it's much harder to generate velocity with a wet ball that way. And so couple that with no leg drive and you have what you saw, which was a lot of really ugly balls coming out from his arm. <clears throat> and a lot of really poor reads during the game as well. There were half the plays where we didn't really have people that were wide open and the other half where he just made a really poor premeditated pre-snap read. There was no post-snap read at all. We did have a guy open. The one that comes to mind the most is the forced in ball to Cleveland on a post route uh, when he had Siante Lewis on a seam route wide open. And that really should have been, it was 20-7 to at that point in time. It should have been a pick. Instead, we wound up scoring later in that drive to make it 26-7 and put that game away. But you know, Luke threw three picks. He probably really should have thrown five, maybe six picks and then take away the one at halftime. So let's say that, that four to five was where he should have been. He was fortunate not to have that many. Definitely his roughest outer as, as a Gator, roughest outing as a Gator. I'm not going to give him a complete pass, but there's a bigger problem than Luke Del Rio right now. And he, he is what he is, but there's a bigger problem, and that's the offensive line. And, and we're going to just have to, I don't know, like eat this. Like we talked about it every single week. This week there were false starts. We had eight of them, I believe, eight false starts uh, from a variety of guys. You had Callaway false starting twice. Three of those false starts came in the red zone, which killed drives. But when you watch the film each week, and I, I mentioned last week and the week before that you have about 10 to 11 plays on offense every single game that just would be good plays if they were executed, and they are not. And that happened again this week. And it's it's extremely frustrating to watch this offensive line be so poor on what seems to be pretty basic situations against an overmatched defense. We're not playing against LSU. We're not playing against Alabama here. We should be able to execute this, and we're not. So I continue to be very, very frustrated with the offensive line play. It's hurting our quarterback play. It's hurting our timing. It's messing a lot of things up. And we can continue to say, let's get it fixed, let's get it fixed. But here we are, reaching the midpoint of the season. And it doesn't seem to have improved really at all. That's continuing to really, really grind at me, and it's hard for me to have confidence that we will be able to execute these plays at any given time until we do that and put that on film. Yeah, it's frustrating watching them um, miss assignments, uh, have trouble with basic stunts. Like It's not even that they're getting mauled off the ball a lot of times, although that happens. It's, it's more likely that simple... I know deceptions from the defensive line are giving them trouble and they're in the wrong position or sometimes they're not physically capable of getting out and blocking out on some of these screens. So I actually, you know, when we were watching the tape was really pleased by our schematic plan overall. thought most of the time we dialed up a good play. Now, sometimes it's just not going to work. Defense is going to make a play, but in general, it's like, okay, the reason that failed is because someone didn't execute their assignment. And if they had, that could have been, you know, a 10-yard gain, a 20-yard gain, something like that. And so, yeah, I don't know about the offensive line. Then It might just be what it is. Now, we talked last time about possibly shifting around some roles and positions. Uh, I continue to hope that they're going to learn and grow and play better. I don't know if that's pie-in-the-sky thinking. This is I say this every week. This is a young offensive line. I don't know. Maybe they are outmatched, and they're not going to be able to do it this year. But I'm hopeful by game like seven, eight, nine, that they're going to be playing better than they are right now. 
Um, they've yet to do that, so maybe that's just a false hope, but I continue to hold out at least a little bit of hope. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm the coaching staff and I'm McElwain right now, today has got to be a frustrating day. You came off a, a bye week. There wasn't a real bye week, but it became one. You just looked really sloppy, really sloppy out there. Not not a huge get-off on a lot of these snaps. Just it felt more like a first game than one after this bye, and that's part of what really hurts and affects my psyche with regards to the offense. He's an offensive coach. It's an offensive mindset. It's an offensive team. Yes, we're young. There's other teams in the country that are young too. Ohio State, I think, is like the fifth youngest team in the country. Uh, they're older than we are, coincidentally. They have more veterans playing than we do. But at some point in time, it becomes excuses. It's got to turn to production. And again, I don't know if I'm having tough conversations with Summers, but it, it's reached the point of being unacceptable at the University of Florida to have an offensive line that is this bad for, for really continually now bleeding on three, four-ish years. Uh, we've just been in the bottom half of the SEC. So frustrating points there that's not going to change i can't see that getting much better but the glaring bright spot of the football team remained that way on saturday the defense lights out in the passing game generated a ton of points for us the rushing yards was interesting are you concerned with the amount of rushing yards we gave up in this game generally no uh we're missing some key personnel that i think we'll hopefully have back soon but most of those rushing yards came like on that last drive, I think they racked up almost 100 yards on their last drive against our third stringers. And so, no, not really. Um, they did run the ball pretty well, and they gashed just a couple times towards the end of the first half. Another kind of explosive play. Um, I I think we can get that cleaned up. I, I think that's something that, you know, it wasn't they were getting totally mauled. It was like a bad gap protection on a couple of younger guys getting Anzalone out of position. But I'm not too super concerned. I I was I love the way the defense played overall. I had a little bit of concern about them coming off second half of Tennessee Vanderbilt. I thought they acquitted themselves quite nicely. Obviously, getting two pick six, sixes is going to be huge for your team. What about you? Yeah, not not concerned with it. We knew going into the game that there was there were going to be issues when we played our young guys in there. Uh, you, you still look at Brian number ninety three when he's in the game. He'll hit a lot of the wrong gaps. Teams take advantage of that. They'll run right at him when that happens. Uh, some of the runs earlier on in the game, before we really started to play our, our more of our depth guys, were kind of unlucky situations where we're running a, a defensive line, slant or stunt, and they catch us in a good play call where they're running into the hole we're vacating. Not a big deal there. That's going to happen. So all in all, I thought really solid performance from them. If you're going to give up anything, giving up a few inside runs during a game is, is just fine on a, on a primarily pass-oriented team. And obviously, Drew Locke was 4 of 18 for 39 yards. Uh, we thought he got shut down against LSU when he threw for under 200. But 4 of 18 for under 40 yards with two touchdowns to the other team, that is, that's really solid. Missouri's not a good football team, but, but that is a really good day at the office for the secondary and the defense. And we mixed it up a lot, which I liked. We mentioned last week that we got two picks out of zone. This week, we got our first pick. Tabers was in his zone defense, and Drew Locke read it as man, threw it right to him. On the second pick, we were playing a zone defense with Quincy playing man on that side, and Quincy just beast-moded through it was a pick play to make a ridiculous interception then an absurd stiff arm down the sideline for a score, uh, highlighting what is just an incredible cornerback tandem to watch. So some really insane stat lines coming out of the secondary. Yeah, I love that they showed out in this game. We needed them to because we were scuffling on offense, uh, and they made huge plays and that's what you would want from like the strength of your team 
that if you're going to force teams to throw at them, they're going to come up with some big plays. And they were jumping routes all over it. Even when they kept running that same um, slant, I mean, I felt like, what are they doing? They're not seeing that we're in front of this on every play. Quincy was getting greedy a couple times. I mean, they, they didn't take advantage of it. But uh, fantastic job by those guys. Um, really encouraged by the way they played. Um, and Missouri, when they've had success, they've thrown it. And we talked about it last week, you know, that we needed to come up with interceptions when we had the chance. I think that was one of my keys to the game, and they definitely uh, did well. Okay, maybe the... I guess headline from the defensive performance, unfortunately, is the injury to Jared Davis. Can this team compete without his presence in the middle? Yes, but it's it's going to be exactly what we raised in the beginning of the season when we said, hey, here's what cannot happen. We cannot lose a linebacker <laughs> because if we do, you have Daniel McMillan, who's a senior, who isn't healthy at all, really, from what we know. Just a guy, basically. And too. he's also just a body. And then you've got some freshmen and some younger guys who people are excited about, but have really no experience. Playing middle linebacker in the SEC is a veteran position. It's really like being a quarterback. So if you throw a true freshman in there, that's what it's like when you watch a true true freshman play on the other side of the ball. It's fortunate if it had to happen, it happened at the best time, entering into a bye week, going up against the Georgia team that has really struggled offensively for the most part to put together a complete game. Uh, it couldn't be much better. You know you put in your install, you put in your defensive package, you work with your player, they'll probably protect him some. We might change up a little bit about what we do. Uh, but I'm not concerned that we're going to take like a massive step back because we have so many strengths in so many other areas. It's hard just to isolate the linebacker position. But absolutely, it will be a step back. Yeah, maybe not quite so dominant because Jared Davis is such an important player for us. I'm intrigued by the guy that they put in there as soon as he went down. David Reese, true freshman, early enrollee, so he's been in the system. I remember reading all these articles in the spring that they were working really hard to get him up to speed because they knew this could be a guy that could step in if Jared Davis goes down because we don't really have a backup to him. And I thought he played pretty well when he was in there. I think one of the first plays, he you know, stuffed a run play near the goal line and stuff like that. So uh, acquitted himself well, being thrown into the middle of it. Uh yeah, I, I think teams are going to know, hey, Jared Davis, not in the game. Let's figure out how to take advantage of that. So we'll see what teams do and how do we respond to that as well. And it could be a, a long time. I mean, if it's a high ankle sprain, which we probably most likely is, you're looking at a six- to eight-week injury. Uh, and that's like a best-case scenario to being close to being 100%. Maybe he gets in the field in four weeks, but he's definitely not 100% in that situation. So... In the absolute best scenario, you probably get him back for LSU. Uh, in the worst case scenario, it might be by the SEC title game or maybe not at all. It just depends on the severity and what that MRI reveals. So definitely the worst part of, of what came out of that game was, was that situation. Yeah, it sucked to watch him on the field. And if you're looking for a reason why the offense struggled to put up points, you know, touchdowns rather than field goals, I think I would point directly to three false starts in the red zone. Two by Callaway, which is pretty unexcusable. That's going to keep you out of the end zone. That's a killer down there. So let me ask you, bigger picture, are you concerned about the overall penalties in the McElwain era? Uh, He pledged to reduce them. Hasn't. We're still one of the most penalized teams in the country. Does that give you a lot of pause about his regime? I think penalties are important to examine as to when they happen and how they happen. 
And the reason for that is if you want to look at a larger data set, you look across all of college football and say, okay, well, if I think penalties are important to winning, I would expect most national championship teams not to commit a lot of penalties. But it's actually exactly the opposite. Outside of Alabama, every team that's won a national title since we did in 2006 has been a heavily penalized team, somewhere in the bottom half, which is, which is funky. You wouldn't necessarily think that. I do imagine, without having time to pour through all the data, that the penalties probably aren't what you would consider to be a critical penalty. So they're not giving you a ton of first downs, which is what we excel in on defense. We've given up nine penalties by first down. Um, I think halfway through the season, we've given up more than that, I think, now. But uh, we've given up a bunch, which actually is almost as many as we had given up passing-wise before the Tennessee game. So we had these weird stat lines. And I think with us right now, we're averaging more than eight a game. Other teams that are doing that is Ohio State. Louisville, Baylor, those are all really good football teams. So I don't know what it means, but I do know that a lot of the penalties we're committing are really ridiculous, what seem to be poor coaching penalties. False starts, not lining up correctly in Callaway's case with a quick huddle offense on the goal line. These are things you practice time and time again, and in the game you're not replicating it. And that causes me concern. It's not a it's not a ball in play penalty, which which maybe are the more excusable ones. But these dead ball penalties these false starts, these things are these things are really, really poor. Uh, and we haven't even played on the road very often. The only two road games. So it's not like you can look at that and say, oh, we played in all these hostile venues. So I, I have a lot of questions as to where we are. But if you look purely at the numbers, it's hard to say they matter. Of course, Alabama continues to be one of the least penalized teams in the country year over year over year. And they're maybe the best team consistently that's ever been created in the modern era right so there could be something to that but I guess the answer is I don't know but I do know that I don't like the kind of penalties that we're committing and that we're committing two more penalties a game than we did last year so we've significantly regressed in year two under McElwain yeah it's frustrating especially when they're coming like you said and how they're coming you're gonna have a holding penalty you're gonna have you know maybe a pass interference those things are gonna happen in the course of the game sometimes the refs get a little jumpy on their flags and things like that so I'm not asking for a penalty-less game, uh, but you're right. Those special teams penalties that were really frustrating, um, these false starts, which especially in the red zone were drive killers. I, I don't know. I don't want it to like brand him as a coach, like he can't create discipline or whatever we want to say. But it is alarming. So I, I want something I want to keep an eye on throughout the season is how does that affect us and and really like what, where do we move on from here? Can we clean that stuff up? Feels like false starts. You can clean those up. Feels like a very actionable item for a coach. We'll see what they do going forward. So in a game that we won 40-14, to 14, there were certainly some stars of the game. Who were yours? I'll first mention Tyree Cleveland. We talked a lot about him on this podcast for a guy who hasn't gotten a lot of a lot of playing time. Big-time recruit, probably our top offensive recruit. And, you know, he jumps off the field when he's on there. His speed and his size. Um, I thought not just his production, but his, the amount of snaps he got. So that tells me that he's learning the offense, that they're committed to getting him in the game. And that moving forward, hopefully he's going to be an even bigger um, part of our offense. But he made some nice plays. Um, you know, having him on the field, like, I think stretches the defense. And, you know, it's important that we have someone opposite Callaway because we haven't really for this whole time. Brandon Powell's a nice slot guy, but you need a threat on the outside. And I think he can be that guy. So that was really encouraging for me. Yeah, Cleveland was fantastic. Just watching both Callaway and Cleveland out there is is making me really excited about pass catchers for the future. It's too real vertical threats they can run short routes long routes medium routes they're they're nice size targets 
I thought Cleveland was open, showed good ball awareness. He should have had a much bigger day. He had three catches for 79 yards, but he really should have had two touchdowns over 100 yards without breaking a sweat with some better balls from his quarterback. So really happy to see that. Since on this very podcast, I had said he's got a hamstring injury. I don't think I'll see him play this year. Yeah, And I, I do now believe that McElwain, when he says we don't play guys unless they're really healthy, and, and I'm prone to believe that given the hamstrings tend to linger. So great news there. Obviously, Quincy Wilson and then Jalen Tabor on defense, demonstrating they can play both zone and man equally well, finishing plays, something the Gator defense had not been doing, which was getting a turnover and scoring. Well, we did that in a hurry. A multi, you know, multi-score game there for the defense. Just really, really outstanding. Those performances stood out. And then Jordan Scarlett continues to jump out for me. I think he's the best running back on the team. And then closely behind him is P. Ryan, who's just a ton of fun to watch. Those two guys, I think, are really, really solid running backs. And whenever given any sort of blocking, they tend to really maximize the play. Yeah, agreed. I'm, I'm really enjoying watching those guys run. Um, much maligned Chris Thompson, excuse me, Mark Thompson, not Chris Thompson, um, on this podcast sometimes and by some people that we know. Looking back on the tape, he actually ran pretty well this past week. Uh, you know, I still think I would prefer Scarlett and P. Ryan out there, but I think he played well. Another guy that I thought played well caused a fumble because his aggressive play, Marcus May. Now he's been a guy that you've been somewhat critical of. But I was thinking back towards the season, you know, we haven't gotten beaten over the top very often. I mean, some big plays against Tennessee, but those were kind of outside when we isolated our DB on a receiver intentionally. So do you want to give some props to Marcus May? How are you feeling about him? Oh, I feel I feel great. I want to say that he, he's obviously an All-American as a run stopper, which we've known. I think Jeff Collins has done a very good job eliminating him from playing on-the-line pass coverage, which he just cannot do very well. And they, they've generally only played him at safety in like a cover one single high, which is really like a, a fake safety in the first place. So they've really put him in situations where he can excel, which is what a good coach should do. Uh, and Duke Dawson has become the matchup guy that's had to do that. And while he's not perfect there, like playing nickelback is hard, especially when they're matching up with you. He's infinitely better at covering than Marcus May would be. So very, very good schematics by the defense. And Marcus May, of course, if you allow him to come up and hit people, He's fantastic. He's gifted. He's a truly NFL-level run-stopping guy, uh, and he's added a lot of value on the back end of that defense, and he allows us to do a lot of things out of our base nickel personnel we would not be able to do without a safety that can come up and hit like that. So tremendous season for him thus far, tremendous job by the coaches to put him in spots where he can excel. Yeah, and I've loved watching him play. I think he's a guy that um, if he continues to learn how to play on the back end a little bit better, he I think he has a bright future in the NFL, especially as they move to a more positionless football kind of you know realm of thinking. Any other thoughts on the game or this weekend? So some of the some of the quick hitters on a particular game is we had four turnovers, which obviously exceedingly bad, uh, frustrating there. A final thought on the penalties is Florida's been the most heavily penalized team in the SEC for like the past ten years. It's nothing new under Meyer, Muschamp, and now McElwain. It's just weird as to why we're the school that always gets the penalties. I'm yeah, not what really, the heck? Yeah, not really sure what's in the water there with that, but but that's a fun fact on that. And and then numbers wise, you know, Luke Del Rio was eighteen for thirty eight for two hundred thirty six yards, one touchdown. Like we said, three picks could have been five picks. Just a really horrible day for him. But if you look at the body language of the players, he continues to have complete control of this team, and and that is why I think you do not put in a rookie quarterback, a freshman quarterback over him is the team really respects him. 
And and as frustrating as it can be to watch some of the things he's doing out there or some of the things Appleby is doing out there, the team really, really believes in this guy. And in college football, belief is a lot of it. And so you have to have that. When things go wrong, you've got to continue to go out there, execute, play the next snap. And that's been happening with Luke. And you saw it in this game. Through all those picks and all those turnovers, nobody hung their head. No one looked like they panicked. And that's an, that's an important thing in and of itself on a young college football team like this one. Yeah, I would agree. And there's a quote from him, I think, in the postgame press conference about how we're usually one player away from success. And I want to reiterate, I feel like that's what we found on film. If we can – it's it's not big things most of the times. It's small things. And that's what gives me hope for the offense is it's not like, man, whatever. We're just running these uh, zoning handoffs into the line every time, and it's awful, and I hate it, right? That we're, we're close to being, I think, a proficient, efficient offense. Not an explosive, you know, dynamic – you know, light the world on fire offense, but a good one. I think we're close. I think Del Rio helps us get there, even if he can't produce all the plays with his arm that we'd like him to. Yeah, you certainly think of our offense with a really good offensive line and the quarterback you want, and you look at the plays we're running at the college level, and you would say, hey, this offense is going to be very hard to stop. One really positive thing we've done on offense that should not get lost in the shuffle is we have done a phenomenal job with time of possession. And that's really, really important. The one game where we did not do that was the game we lost in Tennessee. And and that's a crucial thing. It's how McElwain wants to play. And you can see flashes of that on tape. The right players come in. The right quarterback is in there. You can really excel. Of course, one of the back and remaining questions is, can we get the right players, given some of our recruiting situations, some of the thoughts out there? But film study would tell you it does seem close. Unfortunately, it hasn't really improved as each game has gone on which is part of the concern so last week on the show james we got to do something really cool and give away something so eric mutz won a month's worth of free swag from his favorite pro sports team from our friends at fanessentials.net so thanks to everybody who shared the show got people to like it and so we're going to give something away again this week all you got to do to win some free swag is comment on this week's episode post and give us your prediction for how you think the Gators are going to end up record-wise by the end of the season. And tag a friend so they'll comment too. And we're going to pick somebody at random to win a month's worth of swag from fanessentials.net. So if you'd like to use fanessentials.net to give a gift to somebody, I think that's a great idea. They're going to get a month's worth of swag from their favorite pro sports team. Use the promo code GATORS and you're going to get 30% off. That's pretty rad. So let's jump over to our Gator Nation guest. Joining the show today is Brandon Seiler. He is a Florida Gators linebacker from 2004 to 2006. National championship winner, played in the NFL for five seasons with the Chargers and the Chiefs. Brandon, good to have you. Welcome to the program. All right, good to be here. Brandon, let me ask first, how was it being Mr. Two-Bits on the field this past Saturday? Man, listen, that was amazing. That's a -a once-in-a-lifetime type of experience, and uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that kind of Brandon, were you familiar with Mr. Two Bits when you were in school and you were a player? Did you know anything about that? No, person? no, no, not really. I, 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 I knew that Two Bits was a thing, um, but we spent our time in the locker room before the game, so I wasn't really uh, all into it. I started hearing more and more about it after I was done playing. When was the first time you got a chance to, to sort of tailgate and do the pregame routine that most fans would do each weekend? Well, I was working uh, for a company named uh, called CMEC for the last two years, and uh, it was kind of in our job that we had to, you know, entertain our clients um, 
at the Gator games, and they have some parking spots right there in O'Connell Center parking lot, and uh, we would back our truck up, back up a RV, um, you know, pull all the drinks out and food and stuff, and entertain our customers. So yeah, I uh, I did the tailgating for the last two years. I was actually able to do it hard. There's always one thing that there was always one thing that I was jealous of the rest of my family when I was playing. They come up all tailgating and everybody's feeling good and loving the city and everything, and we we don't quite experience it the same way. <laughs> so this is obviously the 10 year anniversary of the 06 title game. Um, what is your favorite memory from that 2006 championship game? I always tell them the same thing. I mean, the year before when Vince Young. Um, won it. He had that one up in the air and all the confetti was falling down on him. And uh, me and Maya were with each other when that happened. And we just looked at each other and I, I told him, I said, man, I got to do that. I got to do that. So that, that once we won the game and the confetti went to fall in and I got that finger up in the air, that was just, that was the moment that made it all worth it, you know? During your playing days at UF, who was a team that you disliked the most? And why? The team that I dislike the most. Oh, goodness. I don't know, man. I disliked a lot of teams. I disliked, <laughs> uh, I, I, it would probably be Tennessee. Tennessee, or it could be Georgia. I don't know. I didn't like, I didn't like no teams. <laughs> I mean, we had a bunch of, we, I wasn't the nicest guy in the world, you know. I I, I don't know if y'all know that, but you know, I wasn't I wasn't one of those guys out there giving helping people up off the ground and giving other guys handshakes on the other team. Yes, I remember a certain level of ferocity in which you played. I always appreciate that. And we have a couple linebackers. <laughs> we have a couple linebackers on the team this year who are playing quite well. Alex Anzalone and Jared Davis. Give me your thoughts on them. How what have you been uh, impressed by them with, and maybe where do they need to grow? I mean, I love both of them guys, man. I mean, they both get after it. Um, you know, high intensity, a lot of energy. And, you know, I'm a big energy guy. You know, if, if you're giving a lot of energy, I think that's something that a linebacker should have. You know, it's, it's not like other spots. Um, it's not like other spots on the football field. Linebackers, you, you know, the guy that when things get a little thick, you should be able to look over and, and see a guy that's, is ready to go and, and looks like a warrior and ready to fight, and then you get on you get on his bandwagon and fight with him. You know what I'm saying? So I think both of those guys are doing that well. Uh, of course, Jared Davis is my favorite player on the team. Uh, you know, he wears my number, and uh, all of the rest of the stuff that comes along with uh, being a great linebacker like he is. I mean, he's 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 a good one, man. Do you think both Anzalone and Davis have a future playing in the NFL? You know, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, it's hard to tell, you know, what guys do what. I mean, I was – I've been shocked both ways. I've been shocked. I've seen some guys play years and years in the NFL, and I didn't think they were going to start at Florida. And then I've seen guys that have a great career and you thought was one of the greatest players – Ever and they and, and they don't even make a team or they don't even you know play but a few years in the league and I think a lot of that is circumstantial. I mean, you got to be 
that's not uh, getting mistaken. You got to be extremely fortunate to play in the NFL and to have a long career. And a lot of the other things got to got to line up for you. I mean, you know, being drafted up under the right coach, into the right system, you know, all of that, having the right owner that believes in you and takes a chance on you, you know, all of that stuff. So, you know, it's not just you plug a guy in. You know, there's probably some places that I would have went and I would have only had, you know, a two-year career, and there's other places that I could have had a 12-year career. But, you know, it's just – that's just how it is, man. So looking at coaches and the differences maybe between who you played under and a Charlie Strong and, and currently a Jeff Collins at UF, both defenses immensely successful, what are some of the differences between the two philosophies of Collins now and Strong then? And is there a style or, or a certain schematic that, uh, that tends to stand out with this year's defense? I think it, I, I think they look, uh, you know, they look similar to us. I mean, um, I, I think defense, um, you know, setting the scheme of things aside, defense is about attitude. You know, if you got a bunch of guys full of attitude and just not going to get beat, you're going to have a great defense. You know, you're going to have a bunch of hardworking, high-motor guys those are the way that that's how you become a good defense. You know, they only got they got the same amount of people as you, and if if most of our guys are beating most of their guys, we're going to be pretty good. You know what I'm saying? What are your thoughts on Coach McElwain overall? Um, I know this is from afar. You, you're, I don't know how much time you got to spend up close with him, but um, how do you think he's doing as the Gators head coach? Man, I love Coach McElwain. Man, I think I think that you know. We couldn't have had a better guy come in there and uh, lead our troops. You know, you, you would think, you know, a guy comes in and, uh, you know, he, it would probably be where he didn't know much more about the history of the, of the school and, you know, the players or whatnot. I, I went up and I sat with him, um, just had a conversation, stopped by first time. I, I really, like, got to talk to him. Stopped by his office just randomly. He opens the door, you know, comes from behind the desk and sits in his little sitting area, kicks his feet up on the table, and just we had at it, just talking about this and that. He knew what high school I went to. and I mean, he's just a real football guy, you know. He's a football guy. He, he loves everything about it. And uh, you can see that. when As a player, you can see that. That's the kind of stuff that you feed off of, and it, it, it goes down into your team, you know. So let me ask you, what's the biggest difference between playing football in college and playing in the NFL? Um, a lot of people say game speed, right? So, so I would tell you the speed is different, but not the speed of, like, the players, right? Because you're as fast as you're ever going to be when you're, like, 21 years old. I mean, you can go, you, can go, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that's 28, 29 in the NFL and try to act like they're at their prime. They can't run nearly what they can run like when they were 21 years old. But the the mental speed, you know, in the NFL, you can't make many mistakes, you know, and, and mistakes are exploited big time. You know, in college, you know, it's not as much. You know, you can get away with making a few mistakes. But it seems like every time you make a mistake, every time you don't know where you're going, every time you don't know your assignment, it gets exploited in the NFL. So when looking at passion, a lot of people would say the main difference between the NFL and college is, is the passion of the players. 
Looking at it from your perspective, would you say that your time in the NFL, that maybe you cared more or less about the team, the city, the fans than you did in college or about the same? Um, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different way of looking at things. I, I tell you what, when I was, um, right when I was playing in the NFL, coach Maya, um, he talked to me about maybe going to the pros, you know, and coaching in the pros. I told him, I told him not to do it. I said, that'd be one of the biggest mistakes you ever make. And the reason is this, uh, in college, um, when we're a bunch of 18 to 21 year old guys, 22 year old guys, you can make us buy into that overall team concept, right? You can, you can, you know, Maya was good at inspiring us to believe that if every single one of us ran into that wall at a hundred percent, that wall would fall. But if one person didn't run at a hundred percent, we would all break our necks and fall down on the ground. And then it was like, okay, so how much do you trust the guy next to you? You willing to go do something and break your neck knowing he ain't going to do it? You know, so that concept was good in college. It was it was something that brought us together, made us feel like a family. But in the NFL, I don't care what you got going on over there. I'm not going running into that wall. My family's got to eat. I got to stay healthy. You know what I'm saying? So it's a big, it's a big difference, and that's the difference of the whole thing, you know. It's, it's a team concept, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm getting paid for me to play and to pay my bills, and ain't nobody else doing that. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought, Brandon. And zooming out on just the college game, there's a lot made of maybe how much the modern-day player cares about the school. Would you say that most mm-hmm. college players feel an affinity towards the school they play for, or is it more primarily they feel an affinity for the, the team of guys that are around them? Um, you know, the good teams, the, the, the great teams, I think feel them both, but I think the majority, the majority feel it just, you know, they feel, you know, for their school, you know, and then, um, you know, some of them play for their guys, but not so much the school, you know, but I think when you get a group of guys together that you make them buy into it all, you make them buy into that's my brother beside me. I got to know how he tick. I got to know what moves he make. You know, I got to know what makes him go and what's going to upset him. You know, when you buy into all of that and having the school spirit and, and believing that, you know, you, you, you go to the school at the best university in the country, you know, um, I think that that when you tie them all in and you get, you get teams to believe in it all, buy, buy into it all, that's when you have something special. Okay, well, let me ask you, what are you up to these days? Can you tell Gator Nation, all our listeners, like what's going on with you here in 2016? Well, I made um, – I, 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 I told you I was working for a company called CMEX. I've been on medical leave since August with all of the concussion stuff um, I've been dealing with. And uh, since I've been dealing with that stuff, I've been um, helping out other guys to, uh, to I guess, access – some of the same kind of things that I had to access when I was going through uh, my symptoms and when I'm going through my doctor's appointments and medical stuff. There's, there's certain stuff that's out there that that are accessible to players, but not 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 easily accessible to players, and not um, and 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 they don't they're not really marketed to the players. So uh, I'm kind of put that on my shoulders 
as, you know, I guess an ambassador to try to help out guys that really need this help. Same kind of thing that I'm going through. Knowing what you know now about concussions, would you have gone back and played football all over again, or would you have not have played the sport? Now, I don't think it's a um, – if you talk to most guys, I don't think it's a um, It's a thing of, hey, listen, I wouldn't have played. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I made a lot of money. Uh, you know, half of my identity is in the sport of football. You know, um, it's it's – it's allowed me to do things that I would have never been able to do in the same amount of time span that I was able to do them. You know, 21 years old and playing in the NFL and on TV and that kind of stuff. So I would have done it. Um, the thing that um, that I think upsets most players is that um, the concussion stuff is, is not something new to, to, to the football people, to the owners, to the league. It's not something new. It's something that, you know, they just didn't say or didn't tell you. You know what I'm saying? So that that's the problem. I mean, being aware, being aware of something. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have not played. I would have played, but I would have been more aware of what's going on when it was going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's definitely an interesting topic and we'll see where it goes in the future. Transitioning to something that is completely unrelated. When you come to Gainesville, what's your favorite restaurant to eat at? Oh, uh, shoot. When I come to Gainesville, what's my favorite? You know what? Um, this is going to sound crazy, but uh, they have this fast food pizza joint. Um, it's like a chipotle of pizza. Um uh, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on what's the name of it right now. Is it Blaze? But it's like uh, Blaze. Yes, I love Blaze. And Blaze wasn't there when I was there. But I can't pass by it once without my family, me and my family pulling over and, and getting us some of that Blaze. Man, I mean, that's that place is awesome. That's good stuff. I just ate there today. Well, uh, Yeah, it's awesome. Brandon, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your honesty and your thoughtfulness here today. Um, really... Uh, I had a fun time having you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate y'all having me. All right, Alan. Let's round up what happened last weekend in the SEC. Busy weekend in the SEC. Satisfying weekend for Gator fans for the most part in the SEC. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's start with our friends at Mississippi State losing to BYU 28-21 in double overtime. This is a team that lost almost all of their players from last year. He sort of had a miracle run, probably should have cashed in moving to another school, tried to cash in moving to another school, as you and I talked about over the weekend, but couldn't really make it happen. And this team is obviously in the midst of an immense struggle. Non-conference opponents, conference opponents, really, really down this year. Yeah, you would want them to go on the road and, and win that game, but that's a tough BYU team in certain circumstances, so... The fact they even held it close was kind of surprising to me. Uh, LSU crushing Southern Miss 45-10. I thought that might be a little closer. It was not. It Well, it was close, really, going into the half. I mean, Southern Miss looked pretty feisty, and you thought, uh-oh, LSU's back to their same old, same old. But in the second half, they came out and just throttled them. So LSU looks to be certainly a little bit more wide open, a little more feisty under, under Ed O. We'll see how they, they keep on progressing. 
giant win for Arkansas, beating Ole Miss 34-30. to 30. Thoughts? Yeah, I continue to be a believer in Arkansas. I, I've said all along I thought it would be our toughest game this season. I, I continue to think that will be the case. That's a good football team. And obviously, in one of the upcoming SEC run-up games we're going to look at, Arkansas, I think, proved just how good they might be with their performance against Alabama, although weird. Uh, that's a team you probably don't really want to play. They're, they're a good football team. I mean, Ole Miss-Arkansas is almost always entertaining. Last year's backwards lateral that effectively put Alabama in the national championship. I mean, that, that was a pretty wild game. I, I don't know that it says a lot that Ole Miss isn't good. It's just that um, I think Arkansas is, is pretty solid. All right, in the good news for the Gators category, Georgia going down to Vanderbilt. Our boy Zach Cunningham making a huge tackle there in the game. 17-16, Vandy. Jacob Easton threw for almost 400 yards in this game. That's remarkable. And and Georgia couldn't run the ball at all. And I, we mentioned in the beginning of the season that Kirby Smart was sitting on an unlit bonfire. And generally, I think everyone gives a coach a year one pass. But I I wonder how many Georgia fans after that game were thinking, oh no, we just gave Vanderbilt their first road win in SEC play under Derek Mason. I mean... That's not a comforting result. You're not pressing the panic button, but maybe be careful what you wish for. And I'm sure that that bonfire is not quite lit yet, but it's probably starting to already heat up with regards oh, to the, they, the unusual fan they're frustrations. They're circling the panic button at least. They're, they haven't mashed it yet, but I don't know. I mean, there looks to be a few more losses down the road here for Georgia. And then uh, on Twitter, someone you know took a shot of a, uh, very upset Georgia fan covering her mouth, and it's like the moment when you remember you Georgia fired their coach who went nine and three last year. So uh, rough start for the Kirby Smart era. Alabama crunching the Volunteers forty nine to ten. Josh Dobbs passed for ninety two yards, which there you have it, right? I mean, he is exactly what we thought he was, and of to course, quote Dennis Green, they are who we thought they yeah, were. Yeah, and of course, Nick Saban is the one to exploit it. I'm I'm so sick of Nick Saban having to carry everyone else, carry the SEC's reputation, do the things that you think should be done to some of these players and expose their weaknesses. But that's very Bill Belichick esque of him, and he did it. And the SEC West is seven and zero against the SEC East, or least, which again I continue to just think is is a really bad division in football and. The West keeps proving me right about that. Yeah, I thought that Nick Saban was going to look at the tape of Tennessee playing and say, hmm, maybe I'll just move my linebacker over here. Maybe I'll just move my safety over here. I won't let them do this garbage stuff that they've been doing every single play. I think that's exactly what happened. And once Alabama gets a lead on you, it's it's pretty much death. So, James, our first mailbag, we ask you guys to send in some questions via Facebook and Twitter, and you did, so thanks for doing that. Let's jump right in and get to the people's questions, right? So our first question comes from Josh Duty, and he asks, what did LSU really gain by refusing to play the makeup game in Gainesville? Man, that has been just tossed around. And, and to nutshell this whole situation, just to encapsulate it, I'm really happy that LSU came out looking like the complete D-bags that they were and are in this scenario, and that the SEC commissioner purposely did not thank them when he thanked us, Presbyterian, and South Alabama in rescheduling the game. He omitted LSU because they basically took the role of mercenary and said, we will only play on this date, only play in our stadium. And we had to come across the aisle and make a concession, which I think won us a lot of brownie points with the SEC. I think we look at the good guys 
uh, as far as all the other teams go. I think there's value in that. The only narrative I can think of for LSU is that they have 18 returning starters from last year's team. They're going to graduate a significant portion of that roster. They feel like this year is more important than next year. Next year, you get the first year by with your coach, so to speak. So let's load up our home schedule this season. Let's give us the best possible chance of doing something in the SEC. And, and let's let's trade that chip, the chip of now, for the future chip, realizing that neither chip is that great because their schedule this year is extremely difficult down the close. But that's the only thing I think of is it seems like they're going all in on this season and that they believe that this team that was a preseason top 10 team, a trendy playoff pick team, can still reach that level, and, and they're just trading the now for the future. It's a weak narrative, but it's the only one I can see that is in accordance with how they're acting within their own interest to trade the two games later for the game this year. I'm just kind of blown away by LSU during this whole process. I don't understand what they're doing at any point. Um, and they the, the narratives they kept putting out there, you know, oh, they were going to have to play three straight SEC road games. It's like, well, if we had moved the game originally, we would have played three straight SEC road games. It's like, oh, we can't afford to lose a home game. Oh, no. It's like, well, okay, we'll make Florida lose two. Like that, I don't understand where they're coming from. Basically, I think he just said, we're playing on November 19th, and we're playing on November 19th, and we're playing on November 19th, and like it wouldn't listen to anything else. I don't know what they really gained. I mean, they already have two losses on the season. There's no way they're making the playoff. I mean, it's an outside shot they can win the SEC. They've already fired their coach. I don't know. It's really strange. I don't, the answer to what did they gain? I guess a home game on November 19th. That's what they gained. In the middle of an incredibly difficult schedule. So congratulations to LSU. I'm just really confused. And, and Joe Oliva, the AD, just comes out looking like a garbage person in this scenario. I, I think he was trying to do what was best for his school, but he looked like a total clown, I feel like. He did. And one benefit we gain is like an intense rival now. Because I feel yes. like if you're anything like me, like I hate LSU right now. <laughs> and before I was like, yeah, whatever, it's LSU. Now I'm like, oh, I can't stand them. So that, that makes the game even more fun. Let's move on to our next question. It's about Wilger. Uh, Bleacher Report did a big article about him. Let me go ahead and read this. What's your main takeaway from the Gleer, Greer Bleacher Report article? Should he still be our QB, or was it best to move on? Basically, I want to know, do you believe like the narrative that was put forth in that article, James? This question obviously hits me deep, as we know. I talked about it a lot this year. I'm going to answer this as briefly as I possibly can. But... Obviously, given this other side of the story I have heard, the Bleacher Report article was almost word for word exactly what I had heard last year. So when nothing was being reported to the media, I had heard from solid sources inside the team that that's what they thought the case was, and it was never reported. So now Will comes out with a story that matches that identically. I tend to think, hmm, that matches some other stories that I've heard. And without getting into it, It seems to me that maybe both sides are lying a little bit, but if the truth is in the middle, I don't love the fact that it's it's very possible that Will Greer was forced out of the University of Florida and then also made to look like a villain, potentially, if that's not true. I'm not comfortable with that being the case. I'm never going to know that that's the situation, but really the only reason it chaps me up, aside from the ethics of it all, is that I continue to think Will Greer was an exceptionally talented quarterback. And, and I believed last year it would have done special things. And I think this year would be a really excellent football team. And that's just something we have to live with. So should he have been on the roster? 
such a complicated situation, right? So hard to know the answer to that question. Is it hurtful that he's not on our roster, in my opinion? Absolutely. I think the stories that Luke Del Rio was better than Will Greer last year, those are completely, absurdly baseless, in my opinion. There's just no way that he is. So for that fact, if Will Greer was on our team, we would be better. There's so many other moving parts to this. I have a hard time being able to definitively answer that question. Yeah, it's it's challenging because on one hand, it feels crazy not to have a guy who is highly recruited and who had performed well in your offense, not on your team. That suspension for a year is going to continue to haunt this program, I think, for years down the road. We talked about that. Should we have moved on? I don't know. Maybe it would have been best. Maybe that's what McElwain was thinking is like, this is going to be a distraction all offseason into the first half of the season. But you know what? I'd be really excited if he was slated to start that Missouri game and or headed into the bye week maybe, you know, and putting him as a starter heading into Georgia. I don't know. that I would feel a lot more hopeful about our offense. Yeah, and that's the right question to ask yourself, right? Is if you could insert Will Grant into the lineup right now, would you do it? And if the answer is yes, then obviously that decision is something that should be questioned and should be thought about. Distraction, not distraction. Rust, not rust. If you seriously ask yourself that question and the answer is yes, then that decision, especially with Will coming out and saying he didn't want to leave, it's not ideal, not comfortable. All right, let's move on. We got a couple of questions about Luke Del Rio. Nick Karras asked one, and I'm going to read one, a similar one from Tan Carter here on Twitter. And it says, LDR doesn't have the arm strength. Appleby lacks command. At what point do you give some freshmen some live game reps for the future? I got that question a lot this weekend. And I think the answer is not until Luke Del Rio gets hurt and or Appleby also gets hurt. And all you have to do is look at how a true freshman plays quarterback. So Jacob Eason at Georgia is a five-star quarterback. He was the number one overall rated quarterback. He has taken virtually every single snap for Georgia. This past week, he had a good game, and the week before, he threw for 40 yards. There's wildly inconsistent. You also cannot, it is impossible to be a leader as a freshman of a football team as a quarterback. And that is a huge, huge component. And so I just don't think, regardless of what you hear in practice, where maybe Trask is throwing a great seam route or Franks is really developing, commanding a huddle, commanding a bunch of guys that are older than you, have played longer than you, is a really difficult skill set. I think that Luke Del Rio commands the offense the best way, and we have to live with the limitations, because inserting a true wild card in here, when we have the kind of defense that we have, is an unnecessary risk. If our defense was not very good, I absolutely think you consider throwing a wild card in there because you need more points. But right now, you need a game manager. And I think Del Rio can be that game manager. It's not lovely. It's not pretty. It's not even exciting. But I think that's probably the best way to manage our resources right now. I agree with you 100%. I mean, last year we were calling for literally anybody to come play quarterback other than Tron Harris. I mean, you were advocating for basically almost the mythical man, Jacob Guy, our listeners last year, remember. We had no idea if he could even like throw the ball, but you're like literally anyone else. doesn't feel the same way, even though the offense is not performing. They're not a nightmare out on the field like they were last year. So I think too soon to call for some of that. They're freshmen. Give them a year. Okay, let me read the next one from Caleb Batchelor. Once Del Rio shakes off the rust, how good can our offense be with the emergence of Cleveland, P. Ryan, and Scarlett? That question is probably best answered with how good can the offense be if we had a quarterback and offense in an offensive line together, and then it would be probably a top 10 offense in the country. If we have average quarterback play and below average offensive line play, it probably can get marginally better than it is now. Right now we're in the 50s, low 60s for most offensive stats. I had said before the season that I thought we'd finish at 45. 
which looks like a reasonable situation now. We might actually get there. So I think that's what we are. We're like a mixed bag offense. But the three guys that you're mentioning are extremely talented. And those guys can really, really play ball. So it's just hard to know because football is a beautiful sport. It requires 11 players to play it. You have to have all guys on the same page. And right now we don't have that. And if we could snap our fingers and make that happen, then those guys could be some Hall of Fame Florida kind of guys, I think, uh, given what we've seen so far and given what they've done compared to other past Florida players. But hard... That's a hard one to answer because there's too many other guys around them that don't produce. Well, I don't think that they're the X factor. Let's say you take Cleveland out and you put in, you know, Josh Hammond, and then you have you have Thompson and Cronkite. You put an, you know, A level offensive line. That's the difference right there. Those guys, I'm glad they're playing well. I'm really excited about them. But that's not what's going to swing our offense. It's going to be the offensive line play, I think. Um, so I, I'm really excited for them and the future. Those are great young players. But I don't think that that's what's going to unlock it for us, so to speak. So Rick on Facebook asked, does Antonio Callaway have a chance to become the best wide receiver to ever play at Florida? Yes, maybe. It's going to be tough. He better do it quickly because there's some guys with some big stats out there. Um, we looked around at some at our Gators receivers. Uh, the guy that jumps out, Jabbar Gaffney, 2,375 receiving yards in two seasons that's pretty remarkable he didn't play very long but he's extremely productive yeah and riddick hedged his bet by saying hey what if we had better quarterback play when you pull up the numbers jabbar gaffney's numbers are absolutely insane they're they're like hall of fame nfl numbers for two years (laughs) and they're clearly incredibly eye-popping numbers for college for two years if you had him play three or four years he would just have obliterated everyone else. And we've got some pretty nice receivers here. You look at Carlos Alvarez, Andre Caldwell, Chris Doring, those kind of guys. I don't know if Callaway has that kind of talent. I think he's a wonderful player. Even if he had the right quarterback and the right system, he could certainly put up a lot of really nice numbers. It's, ho- it's hard to compare him to some of those other guys, though, because he just hasn't had two years to do it. And those offenses featured the passing game more it's just really hard to evaluate that like if you look on paper would you take Callaway over Jabbar Gaffney I don't know if I can answer that no. question yes I mean, I mean I wouldn't think so right away having watched both of them play that's not a knock on Callaway but that's kind of my gut reaction well if you're looking at just purely statistical things if Callaway stays four years he's on the way to some pretty big numbers he already has 58 receptions a little over a thousand yards um I think he can get there especially if he has big junior and senior seasons, which is when you think you would put up the most number. So I think he can become the statistical leader. So from that sense, maybe, yes, he's the greatest receiver of all time. Now, you know, if we're just looking at pure talent and wow factor, I mean, there's guys we haven't mentioned like Ike Hilliard and Riedel Anthony, Jacquez Green. If you want to call Percy Harvin a wide receiver, I don't know if anybody ever tops him from just the eye test. So statistically, yes, actual talent-wise and fear factor, I don't think so. All right, let me jump in with Chris Orr, one of my buddies here on Twitter. He says, I like Mac, but how long does he get a pass on the offensive struggles? I think until the middle of next year. Three years is generally the magical number. And if you look at any of the elite coaches, they either win a national championship or have a one or two loss season within their first three years. And and generally, it's not their first year. It's the second or third. Of course, a full recruiting, recruiting cycle is four years, but a fun fact is that there really hasn't been a national championship winning or elite level coach that hasn't done it within three. And Chris Peterson at Washington right now is a great example of this. So 
Next year is shaping up to be a weird year for him, but I would imagine that the offense would need to be significantly better next year for fans to have confidence that his plan is working and they would tolerate a step down in the defense because that's a natural when you lose as many guys as we're going to lose. So I'm going to say still a pass this year. Next year, you start to really begin to hold him accountable. And of course, always in year four, that's kind of the magical year. You better have something going then because you've had all of your guys through the program. Well, you look at certain statistics and you would say, and you see that Mac is essentially undefeated with his starting quarterback. Um, so I feel like that's got to be part of it. Year three, I think we could see, as your brother David pointed out, maybe a, an urban cycle. That second urban second year, we won a national championship, but we weren't overwhelming people until the end of the year. And that next year, high-flying offense, defense took a step back. And it was really in year four we got everything moving. I think we could be on some sort of that trend. If the offense does not move forward next year, I think you start to like ask some questions. But I don't think he should be feeling any heat right now. So Alex, Zandra, maybe Alex, but I think Alexander is what she wants to go by on Facebook, asks us a question about Nick Saban and his coaching tree. Essentially, why have his guys not produced at the level that he has or maybe somewhat a similar level with the exception of Jimbo Fisher? Interesting question. I think his coaching tree is pretty incredible. Of course, he comes from the Bill Belichick coaching tree, which is even more incredible. A lot of big names out there. Uh, you've got Jason Garrett of the Cowboys, Jimbo Fisher of FSU, Will Muschamp, of course, Derek Dooley, who's now the wide receivers coach, former coach of Tennessee, but current coach of Dallas for the wide receivers. Then you have Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State, Jim McElwain, of course, here at Florida, and then Kirby Smart at Georgia. So a lot of major programs filtering through there. None of those guys have certainly reached Nick Saban's success, but I would say Nick Saban is the greatest college football coach ever. It's a pretty high bar to jump over to equal Nick Saban's success. Like you said, I think he's the best coach ever. He's essentially a robot. So if you're trying to duplicate what he's doing, that's almost impossible. He seems to be in the perfect place, Alabama, where they'll give him every resource possible. They'll ask him no questions. They'll bend over backwards. Um, there's no restrictions on what he's doing there. He's playing the best conference. So he's basically set up in a place where he can just go as long as he wants, I think. And he's shown no signs of slowing down. I'm always hopeful every year he's going to leave for the NFL. But I think it's a mistake to try to take a Saban disciple and replicate what he's doing. I think trying to beat him at his own game is crazy. Now, McElwain is interesting because he's an offensive guy, whereas some of these people like Muschamp or Kirby Smart are basically in the defensive coordinator kind of clone. You know, it's what you're hoping for. They're going to get the Nick Saban results if you take the Nick Saban approach. And I think that's kind of a foolish attempt. It seems to be that way. I mean, how do you carbon copy something that's that great? You know, you can go try to trace the same image over and over again. It won't look exactly the same. So part of that's going on. On Facebook, Seth asks us, do you guys foresee any staff turnover at the end of this year? Does anyone get poached? Do we fire anybody? Well, last year, I think people were looking at Jeff Collins. I think he would be the guy I would pick. If anyone leaves, I think it would be him. I don't think people are going to hire Nussmeyer. Although people were looking about at him last year, too. Um, if he leaves, I don't know that that would be a huge blow to us. But losing Jeff Collins potentially is. The one guy that we've talked about um, being under fire a little bit would be um, Mike Summers, the offensive line coach. He could be replaced. And then, uh, you know, you've had uh, some a few things to say about Greg Nord, our special teams coordinator. So those would be the guys I think you might lose. You never know with running backs coach, wide receivers coaches, if they get promotions, you could see them leave. I don't know. I'm not anticipating a lot of staff turnover, but you never know. Yeah, you generally don't leave 
as a position as a position coach to another school from Florida. So it's only going to be a head coaching job, which I think is exactly as you mentioned. And and I don't see uh, anyone outside of Collins doing that. You never know, but I think I think Nussmeier is looking for a bigger and better job. He wants to prove himself here at Florida first, probably raise his profile. I do think Summers is going to have a very hard time surviving this year, from what I'm hearing. Greg Nord, I think, maybe as well. So if anyone was to go, I think it could be those two guys or one of those guys. And you do value consistency in the coaching staff, but when when a change needs to be made, you want to do it. And I don't think that Mike Summers is so integral to the staff that that we have to keep him or else. Um, so that might be the, the place where you're looking. And I would like Jeff Collins to stay. Um, I'm hopeful that um, he doesn't get a head coaching job somewhere because I think he's done a really great job so far. So Jason Landry lastly asked on Facebook, at what point in time can we hold Coach McElwain essentially accountable for the mistakes the team is making? When does it transition from, hey, this is a Will Muschamp era team, these aren't all my problems, to this is entirely yours? And we hinted at it a little bit, but is it too soon? Some people are doing that now. Is it too soon to say, hey, Coach, why can't you get the false starts under control? Why aren't these things happening? Or are you saying, ah, you still have an attitude shift, you still have a culture shift? I mean, what is the story? Well, if you're just looking right at penalties, I mean, and we're looking mainly at the offensive line, right? Again, the mantra, this is a really young offensive line, freshmen and sophomores. They're going to make mistakes. Hopefully there's going to be development there. And the defense had some penalty, a rash of penalties early on, but they've cleaned that up. I, I don't know. I don't see this as a team that's like out of control and emotional outbursts and, you know, craziness all the time. Like they're like unchained animals, you know. Uh, so I think inherent in this question is like an attack on Michael Wayne that we're, you know, un, undisciplined team maybe is what he's, he's saying. But I, I don't get that sense yet. I still... I think this team has a lot of room to grow, but I'm not ready to like pin that on McElwain yet. So lastly, let's cover a few games that happened this week on the national scope. We had the Ohio State-Wisconsin game. What would you learn? Well, that OSU can go into a tougher environment and win. I was impressed with Wisconsin, but I thought they should have won that game. Uh, I don't think that Ohio State is the uber team that some people were making them out to be. So I still like my college football pick of Michigan. What about you? Yeah, frustrating for me. I really wanted Ohio State to lose that game, and, and they just sort of that's what Ohio State does. They win games like that. Tough, tough loss for Wisconsin. Tougher loss for Tulsa against Ooh. Houston. Maybe the second craziest scenario finish I've seen next to the Super Bowl when you recall the Titans on the one-yard line trying to win that game. And just same thing, like flashes of, of reaching out for the goal line. But that was just an unreal tackle. If you haven't seen it, Tulsa is on second and goal, Seven seconds left. Time expires as they complete an out route to their tight end, who is seemingly a millimeter away from breaking the plane when two much smaller guys don't allow him to do it. Like a feat of heroism, it seemed. To yeah, stop if he had leaned scoring. left by like a centimeter, he would have been in. At first, when they called him down, I was like, there's no way he didn't lean the ball across and break the plane. But when you watch on the replay, he didn't. They did a great job of keeping him from that. That was a miracle in you know, Houston, which was riding really high. I lost to Navy, almost lost to Tulsa. You know, not they're maybe not at the level we thought they were after their win over Oklahoma. And the last one, Clemson escaping NC State. NC State missing a chippy of a field goal at the end of the game. Um, kind of wild game there for Clemson. 
I learned a couple things about this game. One, I learned that the Clemson fans always rush the field. It's a tradition that I somehow was unaware of all these years. So, hey, good for them. Rush the field every game. That's fun. And second, why is it that bad teams can't find ways to win games? Like, you can know it without watching it. You know that NC State's going to miss that field goal when they're lining up for it because that's just what those teams do. And then you know Clemson's going to win in overtime. So, just tough, tough day for NC State. That's a good football team. The ACC is a good conference. I, I generally don't want to admit that, but I'll admit it when the truth says so. And that's a good conference. It's a very, very good division that Clemson is in, entertaining football uh, week to week. NC State, you know, they played in the monsoon against Notre Dame and then come back a week later and essentially um, beat Clemson. I mean, they, they should have had more points early on. They they seem like they should have had, you know, at least two more touchdowns on that tough Clemson D. So, I don't know, maybe some stuff going on at NC State, not just a Clemson kind of fail. So we'll take a quick break and then return with a preview of the best games of this weekend since the Gators are on a bye. James, the Gators got a bye week, so let's look what's on tap at the national slate. First up, best game of the weekend, Texas A&M travels to Alabama, where Alabama is a 16.5-point favorite. Oof. That is a big, big line. I mean, I'm... As much a believer in Bama's dominance as anybody, but I don't know. I I think A and M's going to be able to put some points on them for some reason. What about you? Alabama is so weird this year. So they've tied Nick Saban's best ever record uh, for winning streak. They're at like eighteen or nineteen in a row. I don't know exactly. And they're doing it in sort of weird ways. They can't pass the ball really at all. They get a lot of turnovers. They ran all over Tennessee. I think quote of the week last week was Nick Saban after the game saying something to the effect of. Not every game is going to be this run. Like, just taking a straight shot at uh, Tennessee's defense, which I always enjoy. Nick Saban's never lost to Tennessee. A&M, of course, he has lost to. It does seem like a crazy line, but I suppose they don't think that A&M can stop the run game of Alabama? The zone read, which is kind of what they run all the time? I don't know. Weird game. I'm curious to see it, though, because Bama has been an interesting team to me. And maybe they're riding too high after beating a Tennessee team that's kind of been fraudulent. I guess we'll find out. How about Arkansas traveling to all of a sudden very resurgent Auburn team, where Arkansas, the higher-rated team, is a ten-point underdog. I don't. When you said that line, I was like, "What? That's pretty crazy." I'm. I don't know. I'm a fan of Auburn in this game. I think that they're you know going to play well. I think they match up decently, at least in my head, against Arkansas. But that line seems crazy. So I, I don't know. It seems crazy to me because we all know that I'm a fan of Arkansas, but Arkansas also is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, so who knows what you get. But I, if I'm putting money down, I feel like I'm taking Arkansas, so let's talk next week to see how much money I would have lost. Old Miss traveling to LSU, where LSU is favored by six. Another interesting line. Uh, does Vegas know something we don't know here? I mean, Old, our LSU playing better. Old Miss very up and down. But I just don't know that LSU can score against... Ole Miss at that kind of rate. Yeah, Ole Miss very battle-tested. LSU's played some tough games, but this is going to be the test game for LSU. We're going to find out very quickly if they are actually yeah, are they improved real? under Edo. Uh, can they win a game like this? We're going to find out. My lean says to, to pick and believe in Ole Miss, but the bookies are leaning and picking towards the preseason LSU that had 18 returning starters and a bunch of guys. So fun one to watch there. Good stuff in the SEC. Outside the SEC, you've got Ohio State traveling to Penn State, where James Franklin is kind of struggling to get Penn State to where they are. They're 4-2. and two. They're 19-point underdogs at home against Ohio State. Any chance for Penn State in this one? Yeah, if I'm a betting man, 
and I'm not, thankfully, because um, I would lose too much of it. I would take the points here with Penn State. At night game, I think OSU coming off a really, really brutal game against Wisconsin. I think this game was pretty close. I'm not necessarily picking Penn State to win, but 19 seems really high to me. Uh, I think I could definitely see Penn State pulling the upset here. Ohio State is not like the juggernaut they seem to be early on, I think. Yeah, they can't pass the ball very well, but Penn State is prone to just getting obliterated at random times. Although you create a nice narrative for Ohio State coming off a very physical punishing against Wisconsin. So we'll see what kind of shape they're in. I still feel like it's one of those games that Urban either does lose or he wins by like a million points. I don't think this one will be close. If it is close, maybe they don't pull it out. But my gut still tells me Urban, Urban blows the doors off Penn State in that one. Miami... Losers of two in a row. The, the the shiny gold dust is maybe not not quite there yet. People still happy with rates, but not as exciting. And then Virginia Tech, who blew out a team in, in a hurricane and then took a really just kind of thumping last weekend as well. So both of these teams' stock falling a little bit. Virginia Tech favored by four and a half over the Hurricanes Thursday night football. What do you got? Yeah, Thursday night tends to get weird in the ACC. Um, so I don't know quite know what to expect in this game. But uh, Virginia Tech... Giving up a ton of points to Syracuse is not totally unexpected. I like what Dino Babers is doing up there in Syracuse. Uh, but I think Virginia Tech is going to hold their ground here at home. And I know it's a tough thing for Miami to lose three in a row, but I think that's what's going to happen. All I know is Miami's stat lines are turning into the old Mark Rick of Georgia stat lines. Like high teens, low 20s, scoring games, just sort of those close NFL-style scores. Probably something similar here. I don't really know who to pick in this one. I think both teams have had high and low moments. It seems like Virginia Tech has played a better schedule, so maybe I lean towards them. With that, we're going to close out this week's show. It was quite a fun show for Alan and I to do. We enjoyed the mailbag. Thank you all for submitting. Thanks again to Eric Mutz for winning last week's contest. A contest reminder that this week's contest or giveaway for the fanessentials.net goods, very, very simple. All you need to do is go on to this week's episode's post on Facebook, Leave a comment with your prediction for this year's score. I mean, sorry, this year's record for the Gators. And then tag one of your friends in it so they can comment on it as well. We'll randomly pick a winner next week. And we also want to thank Josh Duty, our resident stat boy here today. Ow! <laughs> Josh, thanks for giving us the insight, the knowledge, coordinating the mailbag here in the studio. We certainly look forward to seeing all of you next week as we head into what is a always fun Florida-Georgia contest. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job and at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sforpros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.